Hello everyone, Matt here and welcome to Looking Back at Lost, where each week I look at another episode of ABC's Lost to see how that episode fits into the series as a whole. Today I'll be covering episode 408, entitled Meet Kevin Johnson. This is the 80th episode of the series, and there are 41 to go. Before we start, I just want to draw everyone's attention to another project that I'm working on, namely the Revolution Podcast by phgeek.com. Myself and some of my compatriots from phgeek.com will be uh, doing a weekly podcast with the new J.J. Abrams uh, produced series, Revolution, that starts to air, at least in the United States, on uh, September 17th at 10 p.m. on NBC. We're going to be doing weekly uh, episodes where we share our thoughts, as well as kind of monthly, uh, larger picture episodes at the end of the month uh, to look at uh, ongoing story, theories, fan feedback, and the like. So if you're interested in that, you could uh, go to revolutionpodcast.net to see the preview episode that we have up thus far. And uh, you can also check us out on iTunes by searching for PHGeek. So enough with the uh, enough with the mild advertisement there. I hope you didn't mind it. But again, uh, if you like this podcast, you know, it, the, the jury is still out to see whether Revolution will be uh, a show that approaches... Uh, the quality of Lost. I, I think it would be difficult to equal it or surpass it, but uh, just wanted to let you know uh, what I'll be doing concurrent to looking back at Lost. But anyhow, let's now uh, dive right into this episode, and uh, here's the Wikipedia summary for Meet Kevin Johnson. The episode's opening is set on December 26, 2004, over three months after the crash of Oceanic 815. Most of the episode takes place on the freighter Kahana, moored offshore of the island where the plane crashed. The freighter is owned by Charles Widmore, who is intent on extracting the other's leader, Ben Linus. Captain Galt stops two crew members from deserting the freighter in a raft. He publicly beats them and shouts that it is to save their lives, reminding the crew of what happened to George Minkowski when he left the boat. The next morning, Saeed confronts Michael about his motivations, the narrative shifts into an uninterrupted flashback of Michael's life after escaping the island. Michael and his son Walt return to New York. Overcome with guilt, Michael confesses that he murdered Anna Lucia and Libby as part of his rescue of Walt from the other's captivity. Michael becomes estranged from Walt, who goes to live with Michael's mother. Michael is haunted by apparitions and nightmares of the late Libby. Michael attempts to kill himself in a car crash, but fails. He sells the watch that Jin gave him in the first season finale and buys a gun for another attempted suicide, but this too is unsuccessful because the gun jams. That night, Michael's confronted by Tom, the other who abducted Walt. Tom explains that the island will not allow Michael to kill himself and gives Michael an assignment. Michael must infiltrate the freighter Kahana using the pseudonym Kevin Johnson 
and kill everyone on board, who may try to kill his fellow crash survivors. Michael agrees to do it and boards the freighter from Fiji. Michael becomes acquainted with the crew and hesitates to sabotage their mission until he finds Martin Kimi and his associates target practicing with machine guns. After Michael tries to detonate a provided bomb only to discover that it is a fake, Ben contacts Michael by radio and explains that the trick illustrated his stance against killing innocent people in his war against Widmore. The flashback ends and Saeed, appalled by Michael's association with Ben, ironically, exposes his duplicity to Galt. On the island, in the other's abandoned barracks where some of the survivors have taken residence, H-15 survivor John Locke meets with his faction to discuss the freighter, and Ben reveals that Michael is spying for him there. Ben later urges his adopted daughter Alex to flee to the other's sanctuary at the temple for safety. She's accompanied by her biological mother Danielle and boyfriend Carl. On their way, and as the episode concludes, Carl and Rousseau are shot dead by hidden assailants, and Alex surrenders. So with that, let's now get into my thoughts about the episode. And you know what? This is an episode which is much maligned. This is an episode that certainly when it was aired, uh, there were uh, negative feelings about it for a variety of reasons. Uh, I think including the fact that we were now looking at the barrel, rather looking down the barrel, of uh, another break in uh, in Lost Episodes, which is to say that we had these eight episodes because of the writer's strike having been, uh, been struck uh, right after this episode was written. There was then going to be a four-week break until more Lost came back, I think, for three weeks, then went away for ten days or something, then came back again for the finale. So I think that we, Lost fans, having gone from... 22 plus episodes for the first three seasons now it was we got these eight episodes and then this was going to be a pause again and uh back when first viewing i think that uh, that the fact that we ended here the fact that we ended with a michael story with not really advancing the plot of our quote-unquote heroes and ended with uh a, an ending that is not uh not loved by all uh, you know, this was not a beloved episode at the time. Fast forward to my rewatching it last night. I thoroughly enjoyed this episode. Lots of fun and kind of free from the saddle of one episode a week. Free from the saddle of now needing to wait four weeks to the next episode to be broadcast. Given that we can, you know, we can watch as we want, this is just another episode. And when viewed that way, uh, it's 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 quite good. I, I thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed it, um, and I think you know we, it's obviously a Michael episode. We get more of Michael, and uh, I for one enjoyed it, despite the fact that uh, you know the the character has gone from somebody who was so sympathetic in the early episodes of the first season, and and then now will make uh, his uh, his earthly exit from the show. Uh, in, in not in this episode, but but before too long. But anyhow, with that little introduction in mind, with my enthusiasm thusly shared, let's get into the uh, get into the the nitty gritty of the episode. Uh, the previously on Lost is a flashback of the seasons one to two Michael story, sins and all. It ends with Ben sending Michael out on the boat, the father having paid a heavy price for his son. 
the episode proper opens with Claire, Aaron, Rousseau, Carl, Alex, and Hurley looking nervous. Then a shot of uh, a rather uh, confident-looking Ben. Nonetheless, uh, tension fills the air, and little is explained by Locke entering with Miles, the latter being tied up. Hey, remember Miles? He's still in the show. Uh, at this point, Locke expositions. And let me say, I'll pause my narrative here. Uh, it's a bit of a weak start to the episode, the first nine minutes or so, which granted, nine or ten minutes is one quarter of the episode. Uh, it's it's a, a slow start, tons of exposition. Uh, so, you know, it's a bit, bit of work to find the diamond in the rough here. But anyhow, Locke expositions about Miles and the freighter folk. Then Miles explains that he's there for Ben, and once Ben is captured, everyone else is to be killed. So says Ben. The show then rather uh, the the show then explains things rather directly, uh, albeit you know info that we already know. Michael is the spy. Yes, the same Michael who killed two women and left. All things that the show has just showed us on previously on Lost, but for some reason we are we are really repeating just so it's clear to everybody. It's that said, you know, it's it's not bad. In fact, I'd say it's good. It's well acted by Ben. It's well stated by Sawyer, but it's just lousy with exposition. It's an excuse to lay it all out nice and neat, especially for new or forgetful viewers. And speaking of the spy on the freighter, we cut to Desmond and uh, Saeed slumbering until interrupted by an alarm. Uh, it, of course, sounds similar to uh, other alarms that we've heard in, in the hatch and whatnot, but no no real connection, I suppose. Uh, Said and Desmond rush to the deck, where the vaguely mysterious Captain Galt is beating the crap out of crewmen. He explains that no one is to leave due to the risks involved, exposition, and that once they fix the engine, exposition, they will be able to leave, expo- well, you get the idea. Anyhow, with the scuffle breaking up, Saeed decides that it's go time. Oh man, yes, right now. Why are you on this boat? I'm here to die. Certainly not the uh, not the answer we were expecting. I think that's safe to say. Uh, but as we'll see from the story, it's <laughs> it's a harder task for Michael than you might have thought. Uh, anyhow, with that, we get to the title card. Then we're back in Othersville. Sawyer brings up the Ben deal made with Miles. And while Locke dismisses it, Miles points out that Ben has gone from a gun to his head to eating pound cake. Uh, as amusing as that line is, it's exposition again to remind us of the things we know. I personally hate stuff like this not only for my own viewing but for the podcast do you really want me to simply recount scenes uh, i don't want to but that's what the show is giving me there's no huge connection to have or or, or, or pondering thought to simply you know uh discuss a scene where characters simply recount things that have already happened things do pick up a bit with ben trying in almost bottled up desperation to get Alex to go to the temple. 
Now, of course, we've heard the temple mentioned before, but this time there's a map along with a Dharma symbol attached to it. And it, it's, it's so odd to hear it mentioned kind of in passing, given the time that we'll spend there in season six. Um, it's kind of this, rever- this reverse effect almost that the show can have on rewatch, where you, as soon as they mention the temple, you immediately have an idea of the temple courtyard, the temple interior, the pool so on and so forth, and uh, whereas on first viewing, you kind of can't quite imagine what this temple would be. Uh, it's also ironic, since Ben wants Alex to go there to be safe, she'll die soon, of course, and the temple will also become profoundly unsafe in a few seasons. Anyhow, it's, uh, it's a very earnest uh, scene on Ben's part, doubly so since we're looking back. Ben lays it all out, he, of course, is using the truth once again when he has nothing else in his in his basket, as you might say. Uh, he repeats that since they want him, she's in harm's way as a bargaining chip. Prophetic, obviously, as it will as it will be. Uh, the story returns to the freighter in mourning. And at this point, I was shocked rewatching the episode. Uh, I was shocked to see how much of it was taking place in the present day. My recollection was that it was almost all flashback. You know, oh well. On the one hand, while we are one quarter through the episode, the flip side is we're still working our way through the credits at this point. Saeed and Desmond, Desmond being largely kind of the mute witness to Saeed's verbal witnessing of Michael telling him the flashback story. Uh, Anyhow, they go visit Michael, who, in a convenient moment of frame storytelling, is ordered to start at the beginning and tell everything from then until now. With that, we do. We flash back to Mike in a lousy apartment. Almost literally lousy, by the way. Uh, There's some great visual cues in the set uh, decoration. Leaky faucet, peeling paint, and so forth. As Michael writes, an unknown note. The next scene, of course, will explain it. He gets into his cruddy car and pins it to his jacket. Now, it's appropriately undersold, if only because it's so gripping. Who pins a note to themselves? The only answer is one that's provided for us a moment later, and in fact that has been provided for us already in the chronologically uh, later, but the episodically earlier scene. This is a man who has come to this place his car in the in the flashback story, the boat in the island story, who's come to this place to die. And because of the nature of the story, we know that this and, of course, the subsequent attempts will fail. But there's already kind of a what-is-going-on air to it all. All this from just being three seconds into him pinning the note. He got what he wanted. He got the escape. Yes, at great cost. But here it is some point later. As we'll learn, it's within the last, uh, or within a week or so of, uh, of uh, I was going to say of the crash. And that reminds me that during the course of watching the episode, I was not aware of any sort of chronology issues. Uh, others were, there are some, uh, some quotes from Wikipedia. Basically, uh, well, I mean, we'll get there at the very end because it, it really doesn't bang up greatly against the narrative. But um Apparently, there's a whole flashback timeline issue uh, that uh, that doesn't quite jive. But anyhow, 
back to Michael in the car. His car races down the empty New York City streets. The show, the show really selling a sense of environmental and emotional cold, uh, only doubled by the terrifying speed that Michael builds to crash his car. And uh, it indeed is quite a crash, and it looks like an impossible one from which to live. We head into the act break with that thought. Uh, but after the act break, there's Michael in a neck brace and, and an oxygen tube but otherwise uh, appearing none too worse for wear. With this, a nurse comes in. Uh, she's off screen, though if you noticed Cynthia Watros in the credits, you're almost feeling a different sort of terror as you put two and two together and you realize that uh, that, that nurse, based on her voice, that it's Libby and that she somehow is off-island and after death. Uh, Part of your mind is still screaming, what in the world is going on here? It's a very, very dramatically gripping uh, flashback story to my mind. It's just so, so well done. Almost belying the mountains and minutes of exposition that the the on-island story suffers from in the beginning. And indeed, we've gone from kind of exposition to an engaging quicksand. The story at this point, it's desperate and it's pulling us down in the very, very best way. Uh, before too long, the camera reveals uh, Libby just long enough for us to see her. And with that, Michael screams himself awake. Uh, thus, it's all there. Suicide attempt. The nurse, the real one, tells us. Uh, it's clear that it's, Michael is feeling guilt over what he's done. And that that's what drove him into a wall. And the sad kicker, there seems to be some sort of estrangement with Walt. And indeed, the next scene confirms it. Michael goes to see his mother, with whom Walt is living. Mom says no, and Michael says with equal parts firmness and pleading, I have a right. Gone is the strong, strong statement with which he pointed out to Jack that he has, quote, a father's right. Uh, Hate Michael, if you will, and there's a lot to hate, and it's deserved dislike Harold Perrineau, if you will, uh, and you might based on some of the charges that he leveled uh, at the show, particularly charges of of racism, uh, blaming, among other things, that, that people of color get killed off the show, people like uh, Anne Lucia, who, of course, uh, uh, the actress had asked to, to only be part of one season, and the show not only obliged her, but said, hey, if you're going to leave at the end of the season, let's have you leave a little early, so that way it's for greater dramatic effect. Uh, Much like uh, Echo, who asked to leave the series, who said, I do not want to have this job anymore. Please let me leave this job. Uh, So you might dislike Harold Perrineau. You might hate uh, Michael as a character. But there's just this lovely downward spiral that... uh, starts with i mean perhaps the spiral doesn't start with the crash but he's such an imperfect but uh sympathetic character on the crash day trying to reconnect with his son and here we are two months later he got his son off the island he saved his son at what price at the price that his son won't talk to him there's the the figurative blood on michael's hands and it's just this this wonderful awful uh, step downward that Michael has taken. 
and indeed mom dresses his dresses him down for you know on these very topics uh while giving decent exposition explaining things naturally within the course of the story she knows nothing about the last two months but she knows that walt and michael are living under assumed names that he's given up his rights and she means uh, that of a father but it also i think is an echo to you know we hear the echo of that of giving up his rights he's given up a lot trust dignity self-worth self-respect and in case you didn't quite understand all of that that's that's implied by the acting in the scene uh the scene closes with walt watching from a second story window barely able to look at his father i mean it's the very best of what michael wanted to get off the aisle then it's the very worst because he's lost his son again and indeed, you know, Harold Perrineau might get a lot of guff for Walt and, and his other, uh, you know, and, and some other issues, as we just discussed. But the look on his face here, as he just gets a glimpse of his estranged son, it shows that Harold Perrineau is, among other things, a great actor. Anyhow, with that, the story moves to Michael pawning his watch. A watch, the pawnbroker notes, that has korean actually first he calls it chinese and he's told it's korean but it's the show notes for us that this is a watch with korean on it it's a wonderful wonderful moment it's jin's watch returned and it certainly is a nice little reminder of that secret life of michael's he pawns it for a gun and bullets uh, he then goes and finds himself an alley he loads the gun and he tries for a second time to take his life but instead of meeting the end, he instead meets an old friend. Easy, sir. You got the time? <laughs> no, man, no. Come on, Michael. How about for an old friend? Tom Friendly has returned, albeit in the past. Manhattan, huh? We let you leave one island, you just go to another. Oh. You just relax. I just came here to... Oh. Now, are you ready to talk like adults? You'd like that, wouldn't you? How do you find me? We're the ones who sent you home, Michael. Did you honestly think we weren't going to keep tabs? What do you want? Your help. Why would I help the son of a bitch who kidnapped my son? We gave him back to you in one piece, Mike. You're the one who lost him. told him, didn't you? You couldn't carry the guilt of what you did to those two women all by yourself, so you shared it with a 10-year-old kid. Is that why you want to kill yourself, Michael? Because that's the way he looks at you now? Because he knows you're a murderer? Go away! I got some bad news for you, amigo. You can't kill yourself. The island won't let you. What'd you say? No matter how bad you want to, no matter how many different ways you try, it won't happen. 
it a shot if you don't believe me. You got more work to do, Mike. When you figure that out, I'm in the penthouse at the Hotel Earl. So this scene gives us uh, another suggestion, and the strongest thus far, that the island's power extends, you know, quite some distance, uh, especially given that the island of Manhattan is indeed just about as far from the island as you can get. That certainly is some power indeed. Now this, of course, has been suggested before, uh, this notion of the island's power, including uh, the Missing Pieces episode, King of the Castle. Uh, a reminder, too, that we'll be talking about it and the other missing pieces uh, next week. Anyhow, back to this episode. Uh, time goes by. Michael is back in his apartment, and uh, he tries to fire the gun again, but to no avail. He's about to try a third time when we're interrupted. Uh, at this point, we're giving a, given a sense of when we are in the narrative. The wreckage of 815 has been found. This drives Michael back to Tom's penthouse uh, hotel room. Uh, Michael is disgusted at the idea that some of the others can leave the island as they wish. More importantly, he wants answers about the wreckage of 815. Uh, what we hear is familiar. I would call it not exposition as much as it is rather confirmation. That's not your plane. It's a phony. A man named Widmore put it down there, and he staged the whole wreck. Staged? Why would he stage it? Because he doesn't want anyone else finding where the real plane ended up, except for him. I'm supposed to believe this? Did the bullet bounce off your skull, or the gun just jam on you? Prove it. Sorry? Prove that this guy Widmore did what you say he did. Prove it. That's the cemetery in Thailand where Widmore dug up the 300-odd corpses he needed. And the purchase order for the old 777 he bought through a shell company and the shipping logs for the freighter he used to drop the whole mess down a trench deep enough to guarantee that no remains are ever going to be identified. Do you have any idea what it would cost to bring those bodies up? What you want from me, man? In a few days, a freighter is porting in Fiji. It's Widmore's boat. We have reason to believe he's finally found the coordinates of the island, and he's heading right for it. So congratulations, Michael. Your shore leave is over. You just got a job on that boat. Meet Kevin Johnson. You're joining the crew in Fiji as a deckhand. Tom then puts it plainly. Widmore will kill everyone, but this is Michael's chance at redemption by killing everyone on board. With that, we have an act break, then fast forward to Michael in Fiji. It's fun to see some of our dearly departed returning. Uh, Minkowski and Miles and Naomi among them. I mean, to be fair, Miles is not dearly departed, but uh, certainly Minkowski and, uh, and Naomi. Uh, and then to add Miles into it is kind of uh, a nice little flashback moment. There's also some fantastic set design. It's clearly the actual boat at its actual dock, but uh, the location has been spruced up nicely with 
fish carts and giant signs to sell it as the port of Suva. Uh, there's also a darling little moment that the show so wisely does not oversell. Michael identifies the pleasant-sounding accent of Naomi as from Manchester. It's a Charlie callback that doesn't get pushed too far. It's just, it, it's so perfect, it's so perfect. Anyhow, with this, Tom calls to confirm that his mystery package has been delivered. Another J.J. Abrams mystery box, perhaps. And Tom goads Michael with reminders of the 815 survivors who will die if Michael doesn't do his job. With that, as the trip proceeds, ever-lovable Frank Lapidus sidles up to Michael with some wisdom to dispense. At first, it's ironic, then gives us a sinking feeling of once again not knowing the truth. Lapidus claims that Widmore believes the 815 wreckage was staged and the survivors are out there. Can the latter be true without the former? Certainly is, uh, I think, a bit frustrating to first-time viewers. Now, I will mention that I was a bit unclear as to that myself, uh, as, of course, is, is oftentimes the case. My memory of the subsequent season is always uh, dimmest as I'm, uh, as I'm podcasting uh, the season before it. So I'll pause momentarily to mention uh, that, according to Wikipedia, indeed, Widmore sent the freighter to the island, hiring Galt, the captain telling him that, in fact, Ben had planted the wreckage uh, of Flight 815. Uh, however, certainly, well, uh, certainly as we just heard, um, there seems to be more proof that Widmore, Widmore indeed uh, put it there, that once again, Ben, who we want to castigate as the villain, Ben is uh, acting in the interests of the island uh, and does indeed perceive that that uh, oh, serious threat of Widmore. Anyhow, with that, we cut to a later time. Michael considering opening that mystery box, but he does not. All the better to stretch the mystery. With this, the next scene functions almost like a traditional lost flashback. We've met Kimi thus far, and he's, he's come across as a responsible, concerned man, albeit a cog in the wheel. Michael sees him on deck commanding his underlings while he takes machine gun practice at Clay Skeets. When Michael asks him what's going on, certainly clearly in the framework of the Lapidus scene where Widmore's voyage is being presented as a hope-filled rescue mission, Kimi's answer is telling, chilling, and of course very foreshadowing. We're shooting things. Michael's query of a rescue mission is met with laughter and derision. This drives him to open that mystery box, which holds in it another mystery box in the form of the suitcase. That, in turn, is taken back to the engine room. Is it too much to call the engine room? Each of these rooms with their, you know, their metal doors that shut, to, to call that a mystery box of sorts. Anyhow, the contents of the briefcase are revealed to be a bomb. Darkly, wonderfully, how does it get detonated, at least apparently, an execute button? just like the Hatch computer. Michael feels he's ready to push the button when, incredibly, shockingly, whispers sound and there's a vision of Libby. Whereas her first appearance was clearly a dream, uh, we can now see this appearance as real, the, snow, the smoke monster manipulating once again. Now I had to wonder, is her presence fleeting because they aren't as close to the island? 
I think that that's the only fair argument. I think you know the whispers do do uh, announce the island's power. They do announce uh, the smoke monster. Um, they do announce kind of a you know a disturbance in that in that battle of good versus evil. Uh, I, I choose to look at it as as uh, the smoke monster taking the form of Libby. Um, yes, there's this issue of how far can the smoke monster get away from the island. Well, we know it's some distance. I also don't have a really good sense of how far away from the island they are at this point. I think that's to the credit of the show. That only uh, encourages the possibility of the smoke monster's reach being felt. Uh, and indeed, she comes so quickly that perhaps it's I don't know. Perhaps it's just the briefest of moments where the smoke monster can can project this image uh, if it's actually there, or, or or he can just stretch away for a moment away from the island before being pulled back to his prison. Uh, again, you have no real answers there; just just some suppositions and thoughts. Now, at this point, a quick look to the clock tells tells us that there's nine minutes left to the episode. So, as the tension builds for Michael. To, to push the button we don't buy it he clearly isn't going to push the push the button given that this is a flashback and he's still alive after it we still don't buy that he pushes that he will push the button he of course pushes the button and lets it count all the way down repeating his love for walt after zero a flag of sorts pops up with a message on a piece of paper not yet here we see michael is back working for ben hook line and sinker there's an act break then michael bouncing uh, a ball in his cabin door the very same bouncing you may recall that saeed heard a few episodes ago minkowski congenially comes to get michael saying that he has a call from someone named walt it is of course not walt it's ben on the line the same one who has him hook and sinker ben explains the not yet moment that he won't kill innocents in his war. Michael throws Anne Lucia and Libby back at Ben, but the insult rolls off of Ben. Michael, after all, was not told to kill him. It's a sanitary, closed-loop sort of mentality. Ben caused this, but his hands are clean, he claims. Uh, I think it only serves the Ben character in that Ben was looking for a certain outcome, but won't... uh, won't take responsibility for the consequences uh, along the way to, to meet that outcome. At this point, Ben then spins his plan, get a list of names, hence how Ben knew the chopper folks, disable the radio room, then disable the engines, all things that we've heard thus far. I'm not complaining. It's a quick moment. It's stitching up where we end up chronologically and, and how we got there. With that, Ben says, consider yourself one of the good guys. Michael rips the headset off and falls into tears. This thought of, you know, helping everybody on the freighter uh, devolve into the awful situation that we've seen at, at the present point in the story. So with Michael's tears, the flashback ends. Confession over. We're back in the engine room where Saeed and Desmond have been listening. Saeed, ironically, asks rhetorically if Michael has been working for Benjamin Linus. It's an unpalatable idea for Saeed, the man who will end up working for Benjamin Linus. Let's not forget. But today, Saeed is an independent man of action. 
He immediately marches Michael to the captain, spills the beans, and labels Michael a traitor. What will the mysterious captain do? Alas, the story moves to the island, with Rousseau, Carl, and Alex making their way to the temple. What happens, as first-time viewers, we don't see it coming, although there's a sweetness at the beginning of the scene, which is a hint of dark things to come. Carl? I don't know. I just have a bad feeling about this. What if your dad is playing us? Look, I don't like taking orders from my dad any more than you do. But I know he doesn't want me to get hurt. Well, at least we've got something in common. <laughs> I promise not to tell if you won't. <laughs> greatest shock is the sudden death of Rousseau, a character that has been truly such an integral supporting part of the series, a character that I think that we could could not imagine the show without her, at least at the edges, and now of course she is gone. that carl is dead rousseau is dead and the mysterious gunman though not too mysterious given that we saw kimi and uh, company with guns just a short while previous are presumably going to act one way or the other now with the episode over let me kind of take you back to 2008 watching this episode the first time i think that we were not sure how to feel this, of course, was the end of the pre-strike episodes. We knew that more was coming, uh, the strike having been concluded, but having to wait four weeks uh, in that bumpy post-strike road, uh, it was just, it was a weird place to end, and, and more on that in a moment. But there certainly were statements uh, ahead of time from Lindelof and Cuse of regret. This isn't where they would have paused if they had their druthers. Uh, the good news is that for us, series over, DVDs and Blu-ray and Netflix uh, accounts in place, the good news is that this isn't the end of season four. Uh, and the good news is it's not even a pause. Um, it's just the end of this episode before a, a string of fantastic episodes. And indeed, I think that that was the good news for 2008, that the series didn't, or the season didn't end on that note. Uh, which I think would have been a very sour one. Uh, we can we can rationalize the 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 
writer's strike causing uh, the, the break in production that it did. Uh, we, of course, just get to carry on as the weeks go on uh, uninterrupted. So with that, let's now get to uh, get to Lostpedia for the bits and pieces that I've missed. Uh, and indeed, we're actually going to start with some Wikipedia uh, uh, information here. Uh, first, some background. Uh, the Writers Guild of America went on strike November 4th, 2007, uh, the day that the writers finished editing the final draft of the script of Meet Kevin Johnson. The writers wanted to hold the eight episodes until they were able to produce more of the season because the eighth episode has had a, quote, very cool, close quote, yet inconclusive cliffhanger that was not written to end the season. They compared it to the end of an exciting book chapter, but not the end of the novel. ABC, however, decided that the eight episodes would be aired from January to March, regardless of whether any more episodes were produced in the 2007-2008 season. After the strike's end in February 2008, the writers pleaded with ABC to air Meet Kevin Johnson on April 17th with the second pod of episodes, due to the eighth uh, uh, being non-traditional and the start of something new. Jorge Garcia said it's a pretty shocking end, but it doesn't come close to the way our previous finales have ended because it doesn't have that closure to it, and it ends in a sense of dissonance, which is very true. It's the ending they wanted for this episode, not the ending that they wanted for uh, a mini-season, the first half of the season, season 4.0, whatever you want to call it. ABC, nevertheless, prioritized scheduling Grey's Anatomy, Ugly Betty, and Lost Retur Lost's Returns all for April 24th. Uh, ABC, did, as many networks, as was the case with many networks, ABC did not have a complete schedule for the rest uh of the uh of the season shows were generally coming back middle to late april uh and then they were basically doing five or six episodes to wrap things up um and abc was trying to cobble together a thursday night that had grays and ugly betty and lost all together uh and then essentially abandoning other nights with with reruns uh, or, or reality programming, that sort of thing, uh, until the new year, the, the new season. So a little bit of background there. Wikipedia also notes that the original, uh, the original ending to the episode uh, featured uh, the snipers emerging through the jungle in these incredibly elaborate jungle camouflage uh, uniforms. However, this was a cut in post-production Probably to the benefit. I mean, the mystery of it being, is it Ben's people or is it you know, other forces kind of imagined as Kimi's people? I think it's a good mystery with which to end. Uh, elements of this nonetheless will be reshot and used in the next episode where the snipers are identified. Uh, also, lastly from Wikipedia, before we get into the Lostpedia stuff... Critics and fans alike criticized the writer's seeming disregard for the lost timeline. Based on the actions and whereabouts of characters in the third season, fans could, could deduce when parts of Michael's flashbacks occurred in relation to events on the island. Uh, John Kubiak of Buddy TV wrote that this timeline results in some serious issues fans should have with the time. This makes almost no sense. Michael left in the boat. He had to find help, come ashore, somehow explain himself, get on a plane back to New York City, drop off Walt to live with his grandma, find an apartment, get into a car accident, recover, and only then did he meet Tom. 
Either the writers are playing fast and loose with the concept of time, or Michael has had the busiest week uh, in the history of the world. To further support that, uh, the notion of him seeing uh, the the wreckage of the plane crash, uh, you know, after getting that apartment, does indeed suggest a very a very busy stretch of time indeed. Uh, now let's take a look at some of the stuff on Lostpedia, which is a bit more a uh, bit more uh, close to the episode. Uh, the Korean inscriptions on the back of the Rolex watch that Jin gave to Michael translate to congratulations. Mutual Cooperation, Business Development, and Mr. Pike. Also, Michael hears whispers and sees Libby just before he activates the bomb on the freighter. This is the first time whispers are heard off the island. Lostpedia also notes that the episode's flashbacks featured four deceased characters, Libby, Minkowski, Naomi, and Tom. They also say that the Lost on Location feature, I'm assuming that's on the DVD, uh, for this episode shows that Libby, Libby's chest and stomach are bloodied in the scene where she appears as a nurse. However, as no such blood is present in the episode, this was likely removed. Also, rather sadly, this episode features the last appearance of Tom Friendly. Wipe away your tear. This is also the third of five episodes in which both Matthew Fox and Evangeline Lilly do not appear. The others being The Other 48 Days, Flashes Before Your Eyes, Jughead, and Dead is Dead. This is also the second longest flashback to date, exceeding Flashes Before Your Eyes by just a few seconds, and surpassed only by The Other 48 Days and Across the Sea, which take place entirely in flashback. Uh... I debated whether Across the Sea should count entirely. Yes, it's all in flashback. It's not a continuous flashback, but insofar as uh, Across the Sea is only flashbacks, uh, well, it counts as only flashbacks. Last but not least, Malcolm David Kelly confirmed in an interview that he was the actor playing Walt in his brief appearance. However, according to Lindelof and Cuse, uh, the image of Walt in the window was taken from season one footage and digitally placed in the shot because Malcolm David Kelly had grown significantly since season two. So with that, let's now look ahead to next week. Next week will not be 409, but uh, rather I'll be reviewing the lost missing pieces. Uh, as I said at the beginning of the season, I didn't want to do two episodes in between uh, in between. Uh, the break from season three to season four, and given how how gripping this this break was in between uh, 408 and 409, I thought that it would be kind of interesting to approximate that. Uh, it's uh, it's it's a fun adventure to return to the missing pieces. Some some not good, some good, and uh, one or two that I thought were were quite valuable. So certainly something to look forward to next week. And then uh, with that, it'll be the, the mad dash to the end of, uh, of season four, just like that, over, over a five-week period. Anyhow, if you'd like to share feedback, you can do so by saying hello to me on Twitter, where I'm looking back lost. You can call the listener line, 732-707-1815. Send an email to lookingbackatlost at gmail.com or leave a comment on the webpage, lookingbackatlost.podbean.com. So thank you, as always, for listening. I, uh, I particularly enjoyed getting together this week for this episode. An imperfect one, but a, a fun one nonetheless. I'll talk to you all again next week. 
for the Lost Missing Pieces webisodes. Take care, everybody, and bye-bye. Thank you.